Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Prince Metternich, Part 2. One thing was impressed on the mind of Metternich during the festivities of this second visit to Paris, and that was that during the year 1811 the peace of Europe would not be disturbed. Napoleon was absorbed with the preparations for the invasion of Russia, the only power he had not subdued except england and a power in secret coalition with both prussia and austria his acquisitions would not be secured unless the colossus of the north was hopelessly crippled metternich saw that the campaign could not begin until eighteen twelve and that the emperor had need of all the assistance he could get from conquered allies he saw also the mistakes of napoleon and meant to profit by them he anticipated for that daring soldier nothing but disaster in attempting to battle the powers of nature at such a distance from his capital he perceived that napoleon was alienating in his vast schemes of aggrandizement even his own ministers like talleyrand and fouche who would leave him the moment they dared although his marshals and generals might remain true to him because of the enormous rewards which he had lavished upon them for their military services he knew the discontent of italy and poland because of unfulfilled promises he knew the intense hatred of prussia because of the humiliations and injuries napoleon had inflicted on her metternich was equally aware of the hostility of england although pitt had passed away and he despised the arrogance of a man who looked upon himself as greater than destiny it is an evidence of the weakness of the human understanding said the infatuated conqueror for anyone to dream of resisting me so Metternich, after the marriage ceremony and its attendant festivities, foreseeing the fall of a conqueror, retired to his post at Vienna to complete his negotiations and make his preparations for the renewal of the conflict, which he now saw was inevitable. His work was to persuade Prussia, Russia, and the lesser powers of the absolute necessity of a sincere and cordial alliance to make preparations for the conflict to put down, or at least successfully to resist, the common enemy the ruthless and unscrupulous disturber of the peace of europe not to make war but to prepare for war in view of contingencies and this not merely to preserve the peace of europe but to save themselves from ruin all his confidential letters to his sovereign indicate his conviction that the throne of austria was in extreme danger of being subverted all his despatches to ambassadors show that affairs were extremely critical his policy in general terms was pacific he longed for peace on a settled basis, but his policy in the great crisis of 1811 and 1812 was warlike, not for immediate hostilities, but for war as soon as it would be safe to declare it. It was his profound conviction that a lasting peace was utterly impossible so long as Napoleon reigned, and this was the conviction also of Pitt and Castlereagh of England and of the Prussian Hardenburg. The main trouble was with Prussia. Frederick William III was timid, and considering the intense humiliation of his subjects and the overpowering ascendancy of Napoleon, saw no hope but in submission. He was afraid to make a move, even when urged by his ministers. Indeed, he had in 1808 exiled the greatest of them, Stein, at the imperious demand of the French emperor, sending him to a Rhenish city, whence he was soon after compelled to lead a fugitive life as an outlaw. It is true the king did not like Stein, and saw him go without regret. He could not endure the overshadowing influence of that great man, and was offended by his brusque manners and his plain speech. But Stein saw things as Metternich saw them, 
and had when the prime minister devoted himself to administrative and political reforms prince hardenberg the successor of stein was easily convinced of metternich's wisdom for he was a patriot and an honest man though loose in his private morals in some respects metternich had an ally too in schornhurst who was remodeling the whole military system of prussia the king however persisted in his timid policy until the russian campaign a course which singularly enough proved the wisest in his circumstances when at last the king yielded all prussia arose with unbounded enthusiasm to engage in the war of liberation prussia needed no urging when actually invaded austria openly threw off her conservative appearance of armed neutrality and the coalition for which metternich had long been laboring and of which he was the life and brain became a reality the battle of leipzig settled the fate of napoleon even before that fatal battle was fought however napoleon had he been wise might have saved himself if he had been content in eighteen twelve to spend the winter in smolensk instead of hurrying on to moscow the enterprise might not have been disastrous but after his retreat from russia with the loss of the finest army that europe ever saw he was doomed yet he could not brook further humiliation he resolved still to struggle it may cost me my throne said he but i will bury the world beneath its ruins he marched into germany in the spring of eighteen thirteen with a fresh army of three hundred and fifty thousand men replacing the half million he had squandered in russia metternich shrank from further bloodshed but clearly saw the issue you may have peace he said in an audience with napoleon peace or war lie in your own hands but you must reduce your power or you will fail in the contest never replied napoleon i shall know how to die but i will not yield a handbreadth of soil you are lost then said the austrian chancellor and withdrew it is all over with the man said metternich to berthier napoleon's chief of staff and he turned to marshal the forces of his empire a short time was given napoleon to reconsider but without effect at twelve o'clock august tenth eighteen thirteen negotiations ceased the beacon fires were lighted and hostilities recommenced during the preparations for the russian campaign austria had been neutral and the rest of germany submissive but now russia prussia and austria were allied by solemn compact to fight to the bitter end not to ruin france but to dethrone napoleon the allied monarchs then met at toplitz with their ministers to arrange the plan of the campaign the austrian armies being commanded by prince schwarzenberg and the prussians by blucher then followed the battle of leipzig on the sixteenth to the eighteenth of october eighteen thirteen the battle of the nations it has been called and napoleon's power was broken again the monarchs with their ministers met at basel to consult and were there joined by lord castlereagh who represented england the allied forces still pursuing the remnants of the french army into france from basel the conference was removed to the heights of the Vosges, which overlooked the plains of france on the first of april eighteen fourteen the allied sovereigns took up their residence in the parisian palaces and on april fourth napoleon abdicated and was sent to elba he still had twelve thousand or fifteen thousand troops at fontainebleau but his marshals would have shot him had he made further resistance on the fourth of may louis the eighteenth was seated on the throne of his ancestors and europe was supposed to be delivered considering the evils and miseries which napoleon had inflicted on the conquered nations the allies were magnanimous in their terms no war indemnity was even asked and napoleon in elba was allowed an income of six million francs to be paid by france 
After the leaders of the Allies had settled affairs at Paris, they reassembled at Vienna, ostensibly to reconstruct the political system of Europe and secure a lasting peace, in reality to divide among the conquerors the spoils taken from the vanquished. The Congress of Vienna, in session from November 1814 to June 1815, of which Prince Metternich was chosen president by common consent, was one of the grandest gatherings of princes and statesmen seen since the Diet of Worms. There were present at its deliberations the Tsar of Russia, the Emperor of Austria, the Kings of Prussia, Denmark, Bavaria, and Württemberg, and nearly every statesman of commanding eminence in Europe. Lord Castlereagh represented England, Talleyrand represented the Bourbons of France, and Hardenberg, Prussia. Von Stein was also present, but without official place. Besides these was a crowd of petty princes, each with attachés. Metternich entertained the visitors in the most lavish and magnificent manner. The government, though embarrassed and straitened by the expense of the late wars, allowed ten thousand pounds a day, equal perhaps in that country, and at that time, to fifty thousand pounds today in London. Nothing was seen but the most brilliant festivities, incessant balls, fetes, and banquets. The greatest actors, the greatest singers, and the greatest dancers were allured to the giddy capital, never so gay before or since. Beethoven was also there, at the height of his fame, and the great assembly rooms were placed at his disposal. The sittings of the Congress, in view of the complicated questions which had to be settled, did not regularly begin until November. The meetings at first were harmonious, but ere long they became acrimonious, as the views of the representatives of the four great powers—Russia, Austria, England, and Prussia—were brought to light. They all, except England, claimed enormous territories as a compensation for the sacrifices they had made. Talleyrand at first was excluded from the conferences, but his wonderful skill as a diplomatist soon made his power felt. He was the soul of intrigue and insincerity. All the diplomatists were at first wary and prudent, then greedy and unscrupulous. Violent disputes arose. The Emperor Alexander openly quarreled with Metternich and refused to be present at his parties, although they had been on the most friendly terms. In the division of the spoils, the Tsar claimed the Grand Duchy of Warsaw to be nominally under the rule of a sovereign, but really to be incorporated with his vast empire. Metternich resisted this claim with all the ability he had, as bringing Russia too dangerously near the frontiers of Austria. But Alexander had laid Prussia under such immense obligations that Frederick William supported his claims, with the mutual understanding, however, that Prussia should annex the Kingdom of Saxony, since Saxony had supported Napoleon. The plenipotentiaries were in such awe of the vast armies of the Tsar that they were obliged to yield to this wicked annexation, and Poland, once the most powerful of the medieval kingdoms of Europe, was wiped out of the map of independent nations. This acquisition by far outbalanced all the expenses which Alexander had incurred during the War of Liberation. It made Russia the most powerful military empire in the world. Although Prussia and Austria had been, since the times of Frederick the Great, in perpetual rivalry, the greatness of the common danger from such a warlike neighbor now induced Metternich to make every overture to Prussia to prevent a possible calamity to Germany. But Frederick William was obstinate, and his league with Alexander could not be broken. It appears, from the memoirs of Metternich, that it had been for a long time his desire to unite Prussia and Austria in a firm alliance, in order to protect Germany in case of future wars. That was undoubtedly his true policy. It was the policy fifty years later of Bismarck, although he was obliged to fight and humble Austria before he could consummate it. 
with russia on one side and france on the other the only hope of germany is in union but this aim of the great austrian statesman was defeated by the stupidity and greed of the prussian king and by his interested friendship with the autocrat of all the russias alexander got poland with an addition of about four million subjects to his empire a greater resistance was made to the outrageous claims of prussia she wanted to annex the whole of saxony and important provinces on the rhine which would have made her more powerful than austria neither metternich nor talleyrand nor castlereagh would hear of this crime and so angry and threatening were the disputes in the congress that a treaty was signed by england france and austria for an offensive and defensive alliance against prussia and russia in case the claims of prussia were persisted in after the combination of russia prussia austria and england against napoleon there was imminent danger of war breaking out between these great powers in the matter of a division of spoils in rapacity and greed they showed themselves as bad as napoleon himself prussia however was the most greedy and insatiable of all the contracting parties she always has been so since she was erected into a kingdom the cruel terms exacted by Bismarck and Moltke in their late conquest with France indicate the real animus of Prussia. The conquerors would have exacted ten milliards instead of five as a war indemnity if they thought that France could pay it. They did not dare to carry away the pictures of the Louvre, nor perhaps did those iron warriors care much for them, but they did want money and territory and were determined to get all they could. Prussia was a poor country and must be enriched anyway by the unexpected spoils which the fortune of the war threw into her hands. The same rapacity was seen at the Congress of Vienna, but the opposition to it was too great to risk another war, and Prussia, at the entreaty of Alexander, abated some of her demands, as did also Russia her own. The result was that only half of Saxony was ceded to Prussia, raising the subjects of Prussia to ten millions. The tact and firmness of Talleyrand and Castlereagh had prevented the utter absorption of Saxony in the new military monarchy. Talleyrand, whose designs could never be fathomed by the most astute of diplomatists, had succeeded also in isolating Russia and Prussia from the rest of Europe and raising France into a great power, although her territories were now confined to the limits which had existed in 1792. He had succeeded in detaching Austria and the southern states of Germany from Prussia, he had split germany into two rival powers just what louis napoleon afterwards aspired to do hoping to derive from their mutual jealousies some great advantage to france in case of war neither of them however realized the intense common love of both austria and prussia and indeed of all the german states at heart for fatherland needing only the genius of a very great man finally to unite them together into one great nation impossible to be hereafter vanquished by any single power Austria retained for her share Lombardy, Venice, Parma, Placentia, the finest part of Italy, that which was known in the time of Julius Caesar as Cisalpine Gaul. She did not care for the Low Countries, which formed a part of the old empire of Charles V, since to keep that territory would cost more than it would pay. She also received from Bavaria the Tyrol. As for the results of the Congress of Vienna, the Netherlands and Holland were united into one kingdom under a prince of the house of nassau naples returned to the rule of the bourbons genoa became a part of piedmont the petty independent states of germany some three hundred were united into a confederation of thirty-seven called the german confederacy to afford mutual support in time of war and to be directed by a diet in which austria and prussia were to have two votes each while bavaria Württemberg, and hanover were to have one vote each 
thus prussia and austria had four votes out of seven which practically gave to these two powers if they chose to unite the control of all external relations as to internal affairs the legislative power was vested in representatives from all the states both small and great it will be seen that the higher interests of germany were not considered in this congress at all attention being directed solely to a division of spoils but while the congress was dividing between the princes who composed its acquisition of territory by conquest and quarreling about their respective shares like the members of a family that had come into a large fortune news arrived of the escape of napoleon from elba after a brief ten months detention the adherence to him of the french army and the consequent dethronement of louis the eighteenth the congress at once dispersed forgetting all its differences while the great monarchs united once more in pouring such an avalanche of troops into france and belgium that napoleon stood no chance of retaining his throne whatever military genius he might display after his defeat at waterloo the allies occupied paris and this time exacted a large war indemnity of forty million pounds and left an army of occupation of one hundred and fifty thousand men in france until the money should be paid they also returned to their owners the pictures of the louvre which napoleon had taken in his various conquests it was while the allies were in paris settling the terms of the second peace that what is called the holy alliance was formed between alexander frederick william and francis to whom were afterward added the kings of france naples and spain which had for its object the suppression of liberal ideas throughout the continent in the name of religion some of these monarchs were religious men in their way especially the czar who had been much interested in the spread of christianity and the king of prussia but even these men thought more of putting down revolutionary ideas than they did of the triumphs of religion we must however turn our attention to metternich as the administrator of a large empire rather than as a diplomatist although for thirty years after this his hand was felt if not seen in all the political affairs of europe he was now forty-four years of age in the prime of his strength and the fullness of his fame a prince of the empire chancellor and prime minister to the emperor francis on his shoulders were imposed the burdens of the state he ruled with delegated powers indeed but absolutely the master whom he served was weak but was completely in accord with metternich on all political questions he of course submitted all important documents to the emperor and requested instructions but all this was a matter of form he was allowed to do as he pleased he was always exceedingly deferential and never made himself disagreeable to his sovereign who could not do without him from first to last they were on the most friendly terms with each other and there was no jealousy of his power on the part of the emperor the chancellor was a gentleman and had extraordinary tact but his labors were prodigious and gave him no time for pleasure or even social intercourse which finally became irksome to him he was too busy with public affairs to be a great scholar and was not called upon to make speeches as there was no deliberative assembly to address nor was he a national idol he lived retired in his office among ministers and secretaries and appeared in public as little as possible end of section nine